The Ascension, which we are celebrating today, has been officially celebrated in the Western Church since at least the 4th century. Uh, it was celebrated on the 40th day after Easter Sunday, which was Thursday. And it means it's always on a Thursday, just not the same Thursday as Easter is a movable feast. So it's 10 days before the Feast of Pentecost. It's right there in between. And the timing is based on what we find right here in our Acts reading today. Why 40 days? It's in the first chapter in the third verse. It says, Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So since we don't gather to celebrate on Thursday, and some churches do, uh, we don't gather, uh, today gives us a chance to do that, to celebrate while we're still in this very brief season we call, or some call, Ascension Tide, just these 10 days. And so we blow out the Christ candle at Ascension. The one that we lit, again, if you were here with us at the Easter Vigil, when we, uh, we heard the gospel, of Christ's resurrection, and then we began to celebrate his resurrection. We lit that candle. And so this somewhat dramatic act of blowing out the candle, it isn't about an end. Very often we think, okay, lights out, it's an end. It's not about an end at all, but a new beginning. It's what we celebrate today. Though Jesus physically left his disciples, his spiritual presence was to be the way in which his ministry would continue in and through them. To have a new union with God through Jesus who ascended with a human body into the realm of the heavens in the presence of the Father. As he told them in our gospel today, stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And then he ascended. So the ascension was the risen Christ, we can think of it this way, is the final, his final act of redemption on earth, making it possible for his followers to, in Peter's words, to become partakers of the divine nature. So it's not just a relocation that's going on here. It's part of a plan, of the plan, of how the body of Christ, the incarnation, then becomes our redemption. Does that make sense? No? Okay, let me start over. You don't have to answer. If every season of the church calls us to a kind of posture, it calls us to a kind of focus, then for Ascension Tide, as we call it, it's, it's a kind of waiting. We're waiting again with anticipation, renewing our focus. And granted, the Holy Spirit has come and came at that first Pentecost, but we join the disciples, we join the body of Christ in this waiting with anticipation. We're renewing our focus on what, on what, on whom we're waiting for, the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit. So this is actually, the reason we don't want to live this story, it gives us a meaningful opportunity to actually let the story, not only of Christ, but of his disciples, become our story again in a fresh way. This is what we do and why we worship the way we worship. We resonate with their questions, which they ask today, and their posture as it's transformed in Jesus' instruction. It's, this is a chance to re-inhabit the story that we share with them to re-inhabit the story that we share with him and to let its meaning actually come to life in us again. Why do we take this ancient approach to our story? Because without a regular, meaningful engagement with the story as it was lived and as it was told, it's just easy to lose a sense of our place in it, isn't it? Uh, because I think it's pretty easy, and we've seen the Western church in particular do this, to just let Christianity become a set of spiritual beliefs that we bring together in a certain way to create maybe an ethical system or a spirituality that's just kind of loosely connected to our history. 
But Christianity is far more than that. It's a shared story. It's a union not only with Christ, but with the people who are united in Christ. And it's important for us to keep living the story. This is part of what I talked about last week when I preached on John 14. Jesus' command for them is to guard the story, guard his words, guard his life, what he was telling with his own life. So we inhabit the story a bit. And I think two significant questions can help us recover our place today when we think about the ascension, recover our place and actually ready us for what's to come, or at least what we're celebrating again, which is Pentecost, the coming of the the Spirit's power for us and in us and through us. And the first question we might ask is more theological. Well, what does it mean to us that there is a physical human body in heaven in the realm of the spiritual? That's significant because you probably do a great job every day of dividing the two, right? Secular, sacred, spiritual, natural. And this is not just a body, but this is Christ's risen body. So what does that mean for us? And the second question, not so theological, it's more personal, maybe philosophical. What are you waiting for and why? Because we find the disciples in a kind of waiting and watching and looking and hoping, right? So I think it raises this question for us when we think about the risen Christ and we think about the Holy Spirit. So let's just dive in. You might have noticed that Luke's gospel, which we have today, and we have the Acts reading. Luke wrote them both. Luke's gospel is shorter. Um, Again, Luke wrote both of them, and I think the abruptness of the gospel account was really just an editorial choice. It's likely that he assumed people would find his additional details or that the oral tradition would carry the fuller story. The oral tradition was still very much alive. But the the early church actually called the book of Acts just praxis. You ever heard that word? Praxis. It's the works. The works of the apostles, maybe. The works of the Holy Spirit, maybe. Or probably, better yet, the acts of the Spirit of Christ through his apostles. This is really what we see unfolding. The work of, the acts of the Spirit through Christ's apostles. So, incidentally, the only other historical mention of the ascension in the Gospels is in Mark. And he wrote briefly, but theologically actually, saying this. He said, So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into the heavens and sat down at the right hand of God. Which is significant. We'll talk about that in a minute. So what happened here, as Luke tells it, and what can we learn? How can we answer these questions? As always, I think it's purposeful, as I said, for us to listen to the life of the apostles. They give us an opportunity to be human in the story. In some sense, they are us and we are them. You've heard me say that many, many times, right? We don't just have a guru saying things. We have people engaging with it, people in personal relationship with him and with what he's saying and living the story with him. They are us and we are them. We get a chance to ask the kinds of questions that they're asking. We would have asked these questions. The disciples make our kinds of mistakes in trying to understand, and they receive the kind of clarification and correction that we need and might not be so obvious to us when we read the Scripture. So in verse 4, Jesus promises the Holy Spirit who will come in a kind of baptism or an overwhelming, an immersion, a transformation, an intentional, undeniable, transformative experience that is akin to a complete immersion. This is what they are to wait for. And we know what Jesus meant because we're on the other side of it, right? But they didn't really have a clue then. 
They're trying to piece it together. It's very mysterious, this thing that Jesus is saying that they're going to be waiting for. They're used to asking some follow-up questions, of course, when Jesus says these very mysterious and even cryptic kinds of things. And then Luke tells us their first question is based in what they already know or what they think they know. Can you relate to that, right? We work from what we already know, our assumptions, our presuppositions, right? So in short, they ask, will this mean what we hope it means, Jesus? They ask, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Fair enough. That's what you believe and think, right? John Calvin said there are as many errors in this question as there are words. I've asked lots of questions like that in my life. Assumptions. Jesus' answer to them, he, it tells us as much. Many errors. Not to mention what actually happens as a result of Pentecost, right? Jesus answers, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So that's the response to, is now the time, right? At this time? And then he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That's what's going to happen. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria. And guess what? To the ends of the earth. Right? I mean, this is... First of all, their watches are off, broken, so to speak, timing. Pentecost as an event will not be an arrival at an end, but it will be a leaping off point. It's a beginning, and it will have a gradual expansion, not just this all of a sudden restoration of Israel. Second, the nature and scope of this purpose is wrong. Again, they have an understanding. Pentecost will actually advance the inauguration of a new kingdom, the one Jesus has been preaching, and it will inaugurate and be moving through them. It's not going to be the nation of Israel and her politics. Though it began with and included the Jews, Jesus was a Jew. Instead, this kingdom and its citizenship will be spiritually demarcated, right? It will be about what the Spirit is doing in all sorts of people, crossing all boundaries at the end, uh, to the end of the earth. Right? We want to keep it here. We want to control it and curate it and understand it. And yet, the Holy Spirit is going to be doing a new thing. Wherever people profess Jesus, every tribe, tongue, and nation. So it's kind of like Jesus was just breaking open a dam, and they're holding out a thimble. It's kind of a human condition as regards the Lord. We do this all the time, serially, right? It's perfectly fine to admit that. And to admit that we want to understand and receive Jesus and his plans on our terms, with our thimbles. It's fine to admit that that's what we do. If we're honest, even our most sincere, and listen to me, our most sincere, our most persistent hopes are often in themselves limitations. On the nature and scope of what Jesus desires to do. For us and through us. We have our expectations and our presuppositions. It's fine to hold them out to God, but be ready to try to contain the floodwaters of a dam in the thimble that you're holding. It's not going to work, and that's okay. Be ready to be changed. The Apostle Paul says, we look at our own faces in a mirror, but the room is too dark to see clearly. We look in a glass darkly, if you want the King James. 
But this won't always be the case, right? He's saying, and to the degree the Spirit leads us and we live by faith, we're able to see more, even if it's not everything. So it's an important lesson to think about with the apostles. They brought their understanding and Jesus graciously and lovingly redirected and corrected and sort of blew it up. This makes me think of something I saw recently. Um, We've been in Greenville about eight years. We were in Greer about eight years so we've been around this, this area for a while. We finally went to the Greek festival. Festival. Has anybody been to the Greek festival? All right, you should really, really go. The food is amazing, so we enjoyed the amazing food. We took a tour of the amazing cathedral of St. George's. And it was cool because they had most recently finished the massive and the staggeringly beautiful tile mosaic of Jesus in the ceiling of the dome. If we were Greek Orthodox, there'd be a dome right there, and it'd be massive. It'd take up the whole, basically the whole ceiling of this part, and there would be a mosaic in there. And that mosaic is called the Pantocrator, the Almighty. It is the ascended and reigning Lord right there that you can see. But here's the thing about St. George's. You might not know this. They put Jesus up there backwards. <laughs> like, right? If you're like me, you're wondering, how does this happen? How did it go that far, tile by tile? And somebody said, hey, hey, wait a minute. Right? And I'm not picking on them. I'm just like, you you got people working up there, and this is what happened. More could be said about that, but I think it's kind of like a metaphor. There is Christ Almighty reigning. But for our part, we get it wrong. No, it doesn't ultimately matter to anything whatsoever except to Greek Orthodox uh, folks that if the picture of Christ is backwards, and in fact, they're quite humble about it. I would use that to preach with all the time, right? I mean, it's... It's still beautiful and incredible, even if it's hundreds of thousands of, do- of dollars worth of a million backward laid tiles are in the ceiling. But it doesn't matter if we get the ceiling wrong. It matters if we get the story wrong. And it's so easy to do. So the disciples are going to have to trade in their thimbles, and so are we. The ascended Christ and the Holy Spirit are going to far exceed the volume of their and our present understanding. And that's okay. But just get ready for it. Verse 9 continues, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus ascends in that moment. Presumably the same angels who've attended many significant spiritual moments in Jesus' bodily life, they are there. His birth, his temptation, his resurrection, and the disciples are staring, stunned, And you and I would be too. He's just gone. And where did he go? So to the questions I mentioned earlier, what does this mean? What does it mean to us and for us that there is a body in heaven, particularly the risen body of Christ? Now, and by heaven, I don't mean up there, right? Jesus ascended, but we know, uh, we have a cosmological understanding that they didn't have, but it's always been true. So we don't mean up in any 
altitudinal sense. Is altitudinal a word? I don't know. It works. Sense. Though that's the direction that Jesus goes to leave no sense in which he remains here on earth bodily. No confusion. So what does it mean? Four things, briefly, and I could preach actually four sermons on each of these and probably have at some point. But briefly, first of all, it means redemption. Jesus is the first body resurrected from death. Permanently, eternally, and he's making that possible for us. In his own body, Jesus suffered everything that a vicious empire and everything that that bad religion could do to him. He was tortured, he was mutilated, he was murdered. His heart was broken within him. Yet that body is alive. That body is alive and well in the presence of the Father. That heart is restored, strong and victorious because he ever lives Nothing we can experience bodily can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. That's redemption. A tortured body and a devastated heart is now alive and full of joy for us and life for us. The worst cannot win. And some of you need to hear that today. The worst cannot win. Christ's body, having suffered and died, now belongs in complete security with the Father. Full stop. Redeemed from death. Second, it means representation. Not just redemption, but representation. And they're related. Jesus is the great high priest now making intercession for us. That doesn't mean Jesus is just there praying. It means the fact that he is there, that he is present and bodily present, is an appeal to a holy God on behalf of all humanity. That the body is good and that humanity is loved in the presence of the Father. He is the one securing the place we have with God and where we can, in spite of our sin, now come boldly throne of God for help, for mercy, and for grace. Because Jesus is representing us there. We belong. You belong. This is the central theme of the book of Hebrews, if you want to read it. In one sitting this afternoon, I recommend it, or at some point this week. Third, and related again, we have redemption, representation, third, blessing. For humanity, Jesus has fulfilled his promise to make that place for us. Not a mansion on a hill, but a room in the home of God. It's a blessing. It's the inheritance that Jesus talked about, that Paul in particular talks about so greatly. Peter talks about it too. This promise he made invokes something very clear in his disciples when he told this. It invokes the insula system of the first century Judaism, when a groom was anticipating marriage, he would go to his father and he would say, make a room for us, make rooms for us that we can be in your house. And that's what the father would do, build a room or rooms onto the family home to say that where I am, you may be also. So we get the blessing of the promise that we belong. And fourth, it means authority. The body of Christ in heaven means he is now exercising dominion over the earth as both God and man. It's never that God did not have authority and dominion over the whole earth, but now as both God and man with the body at the right hand of the Father in Mark's words, the exercise of authority and justice with the human body 
is being exercised. With the body at the right hand of the Father, the Son has recovered. The Son has secured the call of humanity to be the royal priesthood that God always intended. That a human, representative body is alive with God. What does that mean? It means that Eden... It means the new Jerusalem. It means this is already restored and waiting and will one day overwhelm the whole earth with its goodness. That's what we already know and we already celebrate. When we worship, we're already joining that fact of a new Eden and a new Jerusalem and a heaven that is rejoicing in the finished work of Christ. If we endure, Paul tells Timothy, we will reign with him. It's all over John's revelation that this is our destiny. And this lordship of Jesus, his authority in heaven, is now working through our worship and our faithfulness and our witness on earth. This is what began uniquely at Pentecost or was made possible because of the power of the Spirit. Heaven breaking through on earth in new and personal and corporate ways that are powerful. This is what we mean by Jesus as Lord by His own bodily presence in heaven and His own spiritual presence on earth in and through our bodies. And through that, His rule is advancing wherever and whenever the faithful believe and worship and labor for the love of God and our neighbors. This is what we mean by the kingdom. And this is why this holy meal that we celebrate every Sunday, that we receive every Sunday, the Eucharist, that's why it matters so much. And it's why we need to just remember what we're remembering sometimes. It's a sign given to us by Christ Himself of the reality of heaven and earth present to us. Do you know that? It's nothing less than that. When we claim that Christ's own body and blood are available to us, spiritually available to us, in these material things, we're just simply invoking reality. The reality that is, the greater unseen reality, this mysterious union between heaven and earth that right now feels far off, especially in some of our circumstances. But let me tell you what, it's not. And the destiny of the world is that heaven and earth will unite. And you know what we get to do? We get to participate in that union together as the body of Christ and in the body and blood of Christ as he gives them to us. When we eat and drink in faith, divinity and humanity connect in his presence. Your hands, get this, your mouth, your bodies become nothing less than a faithful intersection of heaven and earth. Because that's where Jesus promised that he would rule and reign. It's a Bethel, a place of God, a visitation where the body and blood of Jesus mediate heaven. In this old building, on Old Buncombe Road, and in your hands, heaven and earth. I don't know about you, and I've been at this a long time, but that still staggers me that Jesus would meet us this way. So to the last question, and very briefly, I just want to close with the last question. What are you waiting for? What are you looking for? Is there anything better than this? What are you hoping for? All of us, like the disciples, we find ourselves staring up into the sky of our own understanding, our own hope, so to speak at what's beyond us, at what we're chasing. Life is just like that, isn't it? We're hoping toward an outcome. We're laboring toward it. We're staring at it. How much of it is in our control? Let's be honest, not a lot. 
And that's a practical impracticality, but that's actually foundational to following Jesus. It's humbling that we have more to hope for than what we think we should. To hope for what He's promised. To hope in what we have by the Spirit, but also in what we're just waiting for ultimately. The same thing to which the angels pointed His first disciples who were just forced to discard their tiny thimbles and challenged to stop staring in the sky with their present understanding and be waiting and ready to have their minds blown and their bodies renewed for the work of Jesus and the advance of His kingdom in the world. We get to be part of that where He is uniting heaven and earth once and for all. Do you believe it? Lord, while we wait, we pray that Your Spirit would unite heaven and earth in us. And we pray as we always do, may Your kingdom come and Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.